Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then Jesus sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Who do people say the Son of Man is? By this point in Matthew's Gospel, the disciples are used to Jesus referring to himself this way. And so when Jesus asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? The disciples know Jesus is asking them about what other people are saying about Jesus. He might as well be asking, who do people say that I am? And so the response is that people say that he must be John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Basically, the disciples say that the people who have been listening to Jesus teach and preach, who have been healed and fed by Jesus, recognize that there is something divine going on around him and in his ministry, but they don't see the difference between him and all the prophets who came before him. Thank you, Dana, for fixing the microphone. <laughs> and so then, Jesus asks the disciples, well, that's what the people of the world say. What do you say? And here comes Peter, right? He's always the one who's talking for some reason. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, which is obviously a huge confession of faith. It's this confession that Jesus names the rock for which he will build the church, it's kind of a big deal. But there's something in Peter's confession that we as readers today might miss. The Gospel writer makes sure that we know that this is happening, happening in a particular place. Matthew gives us a setting for the story. They are in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Basically, if you were to translate that into today's term, they're in Caesarville, Caesarsburg. Caesarland. Their location is brought to our attention because especially if we were in the early church hearing these words read to us, a very clear connection between Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire, the location that Jesus and his disciples are at, and the words Peter declares have a huge connection. Because the phrase, son of the living God, doesn't just come from nowhere. Caesar, whoever it happened to be at the time, was often worshipped as a god. He was added to the Roman pantheon and considered to be by the Romans and the empire around them not just a god, but a savior, a messiah, the one you put your trust in. He was the one who people believed would bring peace and justice to the realm. And so most people in Jesus' day who were outside of the Jewish faith were pretty okay with this. For them, it was just another god added to their pantheon, 
and to worship Caesar was just part of conforming to the world around them. And so at this time, the current Caesar is named Tiberius, and he was the son of Augustus Caesar. And I tell you this because Augustus Caesar was known as a god, like many of the Caesars were, but particularly as the living god. And so his son, who is now currently ruling, was known as the son of the living god. And so with that knowledge, hear Jesus' question and Peter's answer again. Standing somewhere in Caesar Field, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? The disciples, or who others say that I am? And the disciples respond, well, people say that you're a religious leader. And so Jesus continues and asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, fully recognizing the power of the world around them as they stand in Caesar City, says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus, you are our Caesar. You are our king, our ruler, the one we put our trust in, the one who brings peace and justice to this world, over and above this world's rulers, over and above who and what this world tells us we should put our trust in. You, Jesus, are the Messiah, the son of the living God, not this guy who rules over us now. These words from Peter would have been heard as incredibly subversive to the empire around them. And it's on this confession of faith, on this rebellion against empire, on this radical passion that Jesus proclaims he will build his church. This is our foundation. Because Peter could have said all kinds of things, right? If Jesus asked you right now to tell him who you say Jesus is, what would you say? Your Lord, your Savior, maybe even your King, your friend, your shepherd, Son of God, Messiah. The list of names we have for Jesus goes on and on. But nowhere else in any of the Gospels do we hear this phrase, Son of the living God. It's just here, in Caesar town. Peter, know, Peter knows that it's conforming to this world to hail Caesar, and he's saying that something very different is going on with Jesus. And there are all kinds of things that we conform to in our world. There are all kinds of things that become Caesars to us, right? Sure, there are political candidates that maybe people make into their Caesar, that if this person comes into power, they will absolutely fix all of our problems and everything will be just great. That's one way to look at it. And it's probably the way Peter was looking at it as well. He was hoping that Jesus would really become Caesar in the way that he understood Caesar to be. But the Caesars of our world are more than just people. It's anything that we put our trust in, that we put our hopes in. And when Paul says in our Romans text, do not be conformed to this world, he's reminding us not to be drawn into the Caesars we might create around us. This might be putting our trust in the almighty dollar, in believing that if we have more money or make more money, somehow our lives will just be better and fine and everything will be fixed. That finances somehow will take care of us and as long as we make more and more and more and more, somehow we'll find the right answer. And we let a Caesar of finances rule over us, and that Caesar is never fulfilled. And it might be conforming to a world of fear, being unable to see what God might be doing around us, being too afraid of what danger might come if we open ourselves up to our neighbors. We let all kinds of divisions keep us from loving one another, and so much of these divisions come from hatred and prejudice, aversion and just awkwardness, 
They often come from whatever excuse we might find to avoid people who are other than us. When we conform to this world, we might conform to fear, hailing a Caesar that has no room for love or mercy. And conforming to this world might be in just allowing this world itself to become our Caesar. That our culture around us, any of the things we let tell us who we are and who we are meant to be, can become our Caesar. Culture tells us that all the ways we are failing to be this person that can just be fixed, whether that be that we are less physically able than we want to be or feel like we should be, that we don't look the way that we're expected to based on what we see in media, that we make less money or that we are just somehow less than because of who we are. Whatever it is that culture is trying to tell us that we are failing at, and many of us fall for it. Many of us trust that the culture around us has the answers to our happiness, and if only we listen, we might be more capable, more attractive, more stable, more happy. And we might find ourselves at the altar of Caesar's culture, looking for, pe for meaning and purpose there. But Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Peter's words, Peter's confession of faith, Peter's subversive, rebellious witness to the person of Jesus, this faith that can transforms Peter from Simon, a person who hears or listens, to Peter, the rock foundation of our entire church, this transformation for Peter's foundation, for our foundation, had very little to do with Peter. Jesus tells him that flesh and blood did not reveal this faith to Peter. It wasn't Peter that decided to have faith in Jesus or to believe that he was, in fact, the Messiah. But as Jesus says, this was given to him by his Father in heaven, this faith, this confession, this rock, this foundation of transformation comes from God. And as we look to not be conformed to this world, as we look to be transformed, we ask that God renew our minds, that God transform us into people of faith, into people who can stand in the middle of Caesarville and declare that Jesus is our Caesar, who stand in a world filled with Caesars, with things that we put our trust in and say we put our trust in God and we pray that God gives us the heart and the mind to recognize Jesus for who Jesus is. That Jesus, the Son of the living God, who came to this world in order to transform the entire world, in order to save the entire world from all the Caesars we have created, this Jesus who uses the confession of a newly transformed disciple to create the entire church, the body of Christ, even though it's Peter who denies Jesus three times. It's Peter whose faith fails him. It's Peter whose foundation becomes a little rocky when Jesus goes to the cross for the sins of this world, for the Caesars of this world, for the conforming of this world. But that's why Jesus goes to the cross. Peter's failure is why Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus dies but rises from the dead in order to transform Peter again to transform us again and again, to renew our minds again and again against the things we put our trust in away from God. Jesus, Messiah, Son of the living God, does all of this to strengthen us because he is a Caesar unlike any that came before, unlike any Caesar that we might create. And this Caesar lets grace rule over us, guides us to put our trust in the love and mercy we have been given, 
so that we might ourselves be at a wholly different kind of altar, with a purpose to share this love and mercy, to transform the world around us. Jesus does this so that our hearts, our minds, our very selves might be transformed, that we can be transformed into Jesus' church, into the body of Christ that Jesus began in that moment with Peter, so that God can transform each and every one of us into a rock, into a foundation for God's love in this world. Thanks be to God. Thank <laughs> you.